Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphen, it's for October 2015. I am writer-reformed film critic, yes, I'm officially losing that title as of now, Lee Zachariah, and with me all the way from London is our newly minted permanent host, Sophie Mayer. I am a writer-poet-lover-fighter this month, and <laughs> speaking of this month, we have a very special guest. Hello, I'm Blake Howard, writer, hyphen, film critic, hyphen, Muppet eyebrow stand-in, hyphen, first mate of Captain Morgan. Nice. Nice. Welcome, Blake. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Oh, it's an absolute honour and, and a triple treat. Firstly, big fan. Secondly, the first podcast with the departure of Paul um, and and to get to talk to you and so for the first time. It's awesome. Thank you so much for having me on, guys. We're excited. Oh, it's our pleasure. So well, it is October uh, 2015, so we should be reviewing Jaws 19. But typically, <laughs> that that has not come out in Australia yet. They're still still doing this. We were promised day and date, has not happened. So we'll have to make a do with the latest film from Robert Zemeckis, which is. The Walk, the dramatised uh, telling of Philippe Petit, uh, who is the man who, in 1974, strung a bit of wire up between the twin towers of the World Trade Centre uh, and walked between them. And uh, we have Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Petit, and he he narrates the film to camera from atop the Statue of Liberty, as you do. What did you guys make of this film? <laughs> I am still feeling slightly seasick. Um, <laughs> Just saying the words "the walk" it brings back this really immediate feeling. It's cinema as roller coaster. You know how it's being done. You know he was wearing a harness. You know how the cameras were being moved around, and still, it's just mind blowing. Like the immediacy mm. of it, the feeling of it in your body. You just want to throw up and cheer at the same time, which is messy. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> what about you, Blake? <laughs> Look, uh, I think Zemeckis is is one of those incredible filmmakers who kind of gets certain zeitgeisty things that an audience wants to feel or be a part of, you know, whether it's like nostalgia porn of Forrest Gump or like The Walk is just this kind of mental, aesthetic, crazy experience. But the other thing is, just like the characters in Beowulf and their soulless, heartless eyes, I don't think he has a soul for, like, any human characters. So for this, for this film, I was just watching it at one stage completely dumbstruck by how completely crazy and stupid I found all of the characters but then in a positive sense completely dumbstruck by just how visually spectacular the whole thing was so mm. I don't have a weird experience with the walk in that regard so yeah I'm, I'm one of those yeah it's 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 like the film is a performance rather than a biopic and I think even though I know a lot of people felt it hasn't worked. I think it is a clever way to approach the material because, of course, we've all seen the documentary Man on Wire about yeah. this, which is an amazing film. But the one downside to that doco is there's no footage and there are very few images of the walk itself. And yes. Zemeckis knows where his strengths are and he focuses on that event and shows it to us with every bit of suspense that he is uh, known for. And... You know, we all know how it ended. We knew he was fine, and yet your heart's in your throat. It's weird. He was fine, but the World Trade Center was not. I mean, that's part of what I think was that's behind true. part of the success of that documentary is even in those limited photographs and film, it, it was this vision of somewhere that is, you know, embedded in our hearts and minds from cinema. 
And mm. I think there's something about that in the, in the film as well. It is this reconstruction of a location as well as an event. And um, just to, to throw another hyphen, my teacher hyphen in here, the American writer Tom Gunning talks about something called the cinema of attractions in early cinema. And he says, you know, people were going to the cinema just to ooh and ah at the technology. They weren't screaming because they thought they were going to be killed by a train. They were enjoying the sensation of this kind of fairground roller coaster cinema. And I think Zemeckis taps into that as well from back to the future there's just a thrill in imagining these technologies and you do kind of have to check your psychological realism at the door you know like in <laughs> westerns where you have to leave your gun in the box <laughs> at, the, at the door to the bar just but that seems to be Zemeckis as well. Like he seems to have his finger on the pulse of that attraction filmmaking. Mm, absolutely. So that's what he continues to feel like dabbling in. So I mean, although it's kind of some people look at him as a very inconsistent filmmaker, as far as you know, you know what his pursuits are, you can't say that it's not ambitious or at least is like sort of trying to tap into something. It's that weird something. Is he just on the edge of the curve? Yeah. You know, sort of figuring out. What, what audiences want it or trying to preempt what audiences want. Mm. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I like that. Yeah. 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 It seems like perhaps a good opportunity to move from zero psychological realism to the immense and deep psychological realism of legend. Two Tom Hardys for the, pl for the price of one. You, yeah. can't, you can't beat it. And, and I, this is what I want to ask you, Sophie. Is it a misleading title? Because I'm like, legend... Are these guys really legendary? Let's just stop for a moment semantically to analyze. <laughs> legendary? Really? Oh. Violent? Yes. Crazy? Yes. Two Tom Hardys? Yes. Obviously. Legendary? <laughs> Speaking on behalf of my entire nation, which is something I feel really <laughs> well equipped to do, you know, legend is sort of cockney rhyming slang for legend. You know, it doesn't rhyme for anything, but it has a separate meaning. So, you know, a really good meal right. in a pub is just legend. I think that's a good way of thinking about this film. You know, it's not Michelin star, but it's a satisfying pub grub. I think Tom Hardy's absolutely spectacular in this film. Like you talked about being pub grub, but I think that he elevates it. It's like it's it's almost like like the the best serving cut of meat you've ever seen is like a central performance to chew on. You get these two incredibly nuanced performances where an actor is like acting off of himself. You know, a lot of, you know, performance theory and things like that discuss, like, the, the energy that comes off another performer yeah. and sort of inciting you into reacting to them. Whereas, like, he's often at a bunch of stages in this movie, like, inciting himself to be angry, upset, you know, despondent, whatever the case may be. I, I found him, while some of the other things in the film are pretty inconsistent or, like, they waver in, in terms of quality, he is just outstanding across the board. Mm, I think that's how I felt about it, too. Like, it was a little too glib to be taken seriously as a, as a real proper biopic. I don't know, maybe a little too stylized. I mean, it's entertaining, it moves at a good pace, but I, I do feel that Tom Hardy is the reason to see this film. I, I honestly, his dual roles are so physically different that I genuinely forgot that they were the same person after a while. That's, that's really interesting. I felt like that too. I kept thinking about the film as a sketch from Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon's show The Trip. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> it really did have that improv energy, the sense of like two actors or two comedians playing off each other. And we've perhaps got really used in the last couple of years to Tom Hardy being buried behind voice-changing masks or whatever that thing in Mad Max was, like 
garden implements mm. on his face. So to have him there fully present watching his face, which does a lot of the work in the film, these two very different facial performances and vocal performances, that amazing sort of deep voice that he puts on for Ronnie, mm. you know, playing against the type you'd expect. It, again, it is a kind of spectacle movie. Everyone's going to see it, see Tom Hardy. It's not to get the true story of gangland London or some morality mm. tale about whether we should be sympathetic to criminals who were very good to their mum, as the uh, legendary line from Philip Ridley's craze film had it. And I think there is, you know, there's a bit of a haunting echo of that film there with 80s legends Gary and Martin Kemp of uh, Spandau Ballet as the craze, another bit of stunt casting. So this did feel very much like Tom Hardy front and centre, fashion campaign for the look. You could walk out of this film and be like, I have no idea who made that. It's just mm. the like pure performance. Yeah, and it's a shame with Helgeland as well because he's been involved in such amazing films, often in a writing capacity. Mm -hmm. You know, I think about uh, LA Confidential is like one of my seminal films. I revisit it constantly. And I just think Helgeland, like unlike Curtis Hansen in that film, doesn't really have like a voice. Like he picks an aesthetic as much as that, but it doesn't feel feel like he's you know trying to say things with certain shots it's all about the aesthetic it's all stylish yeah well certainly uh, you, that that's an accusation that cannot possibly be leveled love it or hate it you cannot level that accusation at Justin Curzel's Macbeth. You cannot. That it is a film with the director written all over it. I'm um, another mm. huge central performance from someone who many women and men consider a legend, Michael mm -hmm. Fassbender, <laughs> doing his turn as the Scottish king in a medieval Scotland set Macbeth. We've had rural California. Uh, in the Salton Sea with Val Kilmer. We've had Polanski's incredibly grand, not sure really when that film is set, Macbeth. But now we have one that really goes full Braveheart. I wanted it to be the Banquo and Duncan show. I love Paddy Considine. He's one of my favourite actors. And I thought he just, his delivery of the lines was the best. And he just really made me believe in that character. And Michael Fassbender just seems to have been encouraged to assert power by mumbling. Controversial, controversial <laughs> starting point. Um, what did you guys make of it? I have to be honest, I think it's a contender for my favourite adaptation of the play. I've always found Macbeth to be a little difficult and people get, I don't know what people get caught up in when they adapt it, but there's something that for me at least, there seems to always be a block there. Mm -hmm. uh, it might just be me. What I want from these films, because I watch you know as much Shakespeare as I can because I love it, and I watch a lot of it, and so whenever I see a new adaptation, I want it to tell me something I didn't know before. And Curzel absolutely finds a new angle on Lady Macbeth, who here is far less culpable and conniving than she's usually depicted. Macbeth himself is is a lot more furious and driven. I know I know he's always been very very driven, but it all seems to come from him. And I think both of the characters are really interesting uh, because of that. I think Kurzel does an absolutely stellar job with Macbeth. Mm. I, I have to agree, Lee. It's one of my favourite adaptions ever. This is like Sam Peckinpah and LSD version of Macbeth. <laughs> it's exciting. It's terrifying. It's haunting. It's something that just stayed with me. I just kept seeing images in my head and hearing that, that amazing brogue, often with the people who were harder to understand, made me sort of listen more. I kind of kept thinking about those. I totally agree with Paddy Constantine. He crushes this movie. And I think you, you're right there, because like, I love the Lady Macbeth here. She kind of plants a seed for him to be like uber ultra violent narcissist 
And then he just runs with mm. it. And some of the scenes are pure cinema. I think about that amazing fire scene um, at the end of the film and, and the opening battle. But the one of the most uncomfortable scenes I think I've seen in a film this year easily is that very open conversation they're having in the middle of the banquet. Uh-huh. It's like you don't even know how to take that yeah. as a it, it's it's like you feel ridiculously uncomfortable. Your skin is crawling. All these people are trying to sit there straight face and not realize that he's a complete madman. I just uh, yeah, that scene particularly as a scene that made me uncomfortable is really special. I think one thing that this film has in common with Legend, actually, is that it's about the madness of power and our fascination with power. The the way that it commits to the battle scenes, particularly the opening one, does really raise this question for you of like, well, what is the difference between killing someone on the battlefield where it's supposedly permitted and the guilt that Macbeth feels, that interpolated scene of him of sending out a young soldier to die and that young soldier who haunts him all the way through the film sorry spoiler and then killing someone off the battlefield and how does that those codes of honor of war or the criminal underworld leak into increasingly unhinged behavior uh something that we may find ourselves talking about in a bit when we talk about our director of the month as well Mm. where those criminal codes and their effect on individual psyches. And obviously Fassbender is brilliant at conveying that that tortured attempt to make sense of this world. You know, it's, it's bad for people to die, but if you're a soldier, that's what you do. Mm. And I, I felt that that came out and that's, you know, something that's really present in Snowtown as well. So this kind of gangster, as you said, Peckinpah Macbeth, but I felt that it could have maybe gone further with that somehow maybe by really cutting loose from the, the script, the language of the Playmore and pushing the images harder. It's, it's that great wrestle where we're talking about like what, what it takes to attain power versus to maintain power. Yeah. When I saw Snowtown for the first time, I was like, I need to do anything I can to meet this amazing Australian director. And hearing him do Macbeth was a big sort of question mark. It was like, what would attract him to doing something so established but he can just put his pure style across it, and it's oh, he's he's incredible. Yeah, although this discussion has cemented my plans, I, I'm going to do a version of Macbeth with Tom Hardy as Macbeth and Tom Hardy <laughs> as Lady Macbeth. Macbeth. I think I think it has to be done. All right, now, amazingly, we've never talked about film versus digital in the five and a half years we've been running, which either feels like a massive oversight or maybe a good idea, given it's a subject that's been really hashed out. But there are two reasons we're talking about it today. One is that it's incredibly relevant to the works of the filmmaker we will be discussing momentarily, but also... Uh, the debate rages on, with filmmakers such as Quentin Tarantino and Christopher Nolan being quite vocal about how film is the only way they will work. Are they fighting a losing battle? Obviously not. Tarantino has got his way. Hateful Eight is going to have a roadshow tour on 70mm. So he and Christopher Nolan have the power to do that. What I'm interested to see is what does that mean for new directors and younger directors? Are they going to get the advantage of that as well? Are they going to be able to walk into studios and say, Tarantino does it this way, I want the budget to shoot on 35? Or is it going to create this 
massive divide where you have top directors able to shoot on 35 and people flocking to see those films for the romance of the medium and them dissing and looking down on digital when amazing work both at the top end like The Walk and uh, something as fresh as Tangerine are being produced on digital even on iPhones in the case of Tangerine although with an Ari Alexa lens are mm. we going to get a kind of social divide between them uh, or is there a way to integrate them? I think it is about almost like attaining a filmmaking level to dictate the terms by which you approach it. And when you've got like, you know, Nolan, he, he farts and it's a $200 million box office opening. So it's like he can he can do like whatever he wants. And Tarantino is a certified genius. I, I don't know if it seems like whether it's actually about the physical, tangible medium. And I start to think about it more is, is it in a practice of how these guys like to shoot? So if you've got someone like Soderbergh, for example, or Finch, and I like to imagine, say, like Kubrick, who used to shoot like hundreds of hours, take after take. And I, I imagine that they would love digital because it, it doesn't impact the amount of cost to actually bring their production to the life. It, it's just potentially more time. Whereas if you've got someone like Tarantino, who is so old school that he doesn't even want to sit at a video village or, or like a, 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 at a monitor away from the action, he wants to set the shot and he wants to be basically side by side with that lens and having the actor perform to him. I start to think about it, is it about the immediacy of film? Like you're going to catch it, you're not going to have an endless supply of it necessarily. It's like why people still have a Polaroid camera. You know, I don't want the luxury of being able to take this shot 12 times. Do I want to take it once and see how it comes out? I don't know. That's what I'm starting to think this whole argument is evolving into. Yeah, I think a lot of it is also to do with people are now used to stuff shot on iPhones and stuff coming through Skype and YouTube clips. They can get away with worse quality because we're now so used to it culturally. And when Nolan talks about digital projection, he's not entirely wrong because he's describing some cinemas as just being rooms with TVs in them. And I've certainly been to a number of them. I don't know. I, I sort of, I, I see digital as being a very democratizing medium in terms of both shooting and distribution. More people will get to make things, more people will get to see them, but you still need to preserve it as something special. And I think that ties into what you were just saying about that immediacy. You've got to make it an event. You've got to make it something special to, to make cinema stand out from the millions of screens we surround ourselves with every day. Well, there was a big push here. I don't know if it's the same in Australia, but the Film Distributors Association really pushed cinemas to purchase incredibly expensive digital projectors about 10 years ago which obviously now looks shit they're not up to date and so everyone's now got to replace their equipment all over again and you can see that film programmers and projectionists might be thinking oh damn it i wish we just kept those 35 millimeter projectors which hadn't had to be updated since you know the 1940s digital is still an evolving technology that's part of the problem and i can see why there's a reluctance from filmmakers and distributors who want something that's stable the library of congress will not take digital deposits if you want to deposit a film there it's got to be on 35 mm. but at the same time kodak has closed most of its processing plants plants so if you want to make a 35 millimeter print that's fifty thousand mm. dollars and that puts a lot of filmmakers out of the running digital is democratizing but it's also a changing medium and digital is going to disintegrate. Digital files disintegrate. Mm -hmm. they, they're maladaptive. You know, what works on one operating system isn't necessarily going to work on the next one. So it's still, it's a kind of Wild West situation. And the challenge that I also want to throw down to Tarantino 
and Nolan, because I know they listen to Hell is for Hyphenates. They do, Everyone. they do. Big fans. No doubt. Absolutely, absolutely. I want them to step up like Martin Scorsese has and say, if they want to support 35, they need to put their money where their mouth is and be preserving the thousands of 35 millimeter films shot around the world that are not being screened because they're in bad condition. That's, that's my hell is for hyphenates challenge. Get on that, Nolan. <laughs> Get on that with that inner seller cash. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's going to be an ongoing argument, and that's the whole point is like, there is no universal digital format. That is a real frustration. We need some kind of Elon Musk character to come out and build a new digital format that is universal across all of the projection systems across everywhere. And and that's the new medium, you know, that's the new upgrade. When it upgrades, everything else upgrades and it's just mm. standard. Um, but there's another step to that, which is once you've got this universal format, unless you've put all of those 21st century mumblecore indie dramas in a Faraday cage, we are only one good solar flare away from them all being wiped out. And, and humanity, but I'm more concerned about film. Yeah. Okay, we're going we're gonna to step back from that very Kubrickian <laughs> fantasy. Do you guys have a preference? Like, has, has there been anything that has been shot on digital that you've thought, oh, this would be much better if it was shot in 35mm, just incidentally? I think er early on there were some, and maybe, look, there are some that are very, very glossy that I think, and I think that glossiness doesn't always gel with the aesthetic of the story they're telling, and I sort of miss the, the grain of film, but I'm, I'm pretty much, I've made peace with digital, I think. I still get excited when I know there's a projector behind me that's whirring, particularly with 16mm, there's just something really romantic about it, but I feel like I want to see films from the 60s and 70s projected on film and the era that we're in now is a digital era and I'm excited to see what directors like Sean Baker even like Robert Zemeckis are, are making of that new medium. Yeah I, I, I think for me definitely early on you could, there was a pronounced difference and it did feel a little uncinematic but you know you get those like watershed films for me it was the one that got me was uh, Fincher's Zodiac. It was just a very clever use of digital and sometimes I think it's just about the like the filmmaker being able to really make intelligent choices about ultimately what he or she wants to bring to it. Yeah. I am going to say that I just saw Jafar Panahi's new film that isn't allowed to be called a film, Taxi Tehran, yep. at the London Film Festival. And this film was shot on GoPros, installed in a taxi he was driving around Tehran. And a lot of people have mentioned Abbas Kiarostami's film 10, which was also shot in a car with a fixed camera. And I just think you can't take a film purist position if digital is allowing a filmmaker as masterful as Panahi to work against like the most unbelievable restrictions and to produce a film that is really about its own digital quality. At one point his niece starts shooting him on her point and shoot digital camera mm. and you're watching it on a GoPro and then you see her footage and you're aware of the difference between them, the way that he's positioned the cameras, thought about what they're capturing, what they're framing, what the intensity is compared to her shaky handheld. And you realize it's not about digital versus film, it's about experienced filmmaker versus junior filmmaker. What can you do with the technology that's been handed to you? And that, that film just really impressed me because it didn't look like what you see on the news sometimes, shaky handheld cell phone footage from Maidan or some horrible accident. It, the, the framing was still brilliant and mm. it was done on GoPros and you know, you 
Like, hats off to that. Very true. Although I think it's time that Panahi's niece shot on 70 mil. I'm just putting it out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that that 70 mil was smuggled out in an <laughs> enormous cake. <laughs> the biggest cake ever. Oh, I would love to see that. So, Blake, do you want to introduce us to this month's featured director? Yes, I sure do. His name is Michael Mann. Michael Kenneth Mann, in fact. An American filmmaker who went to film school in London, uh, where he started his career. He was doing a lot of uh, screenwriting initially in television. Wrote some episodes of Starsky and Hutch. He then went on to film a couple of short films. Uh, he was a, it was a documentary filmmaker to start off with, um, and they're, they're incredibly hard to get uh, your hands on, um, the, his original documentary films. But he then made a television feature, um, was his first one, called The Jericho Mile, um, which is made in 1979. And he then went on to make his first and probably m most notable film that a lot of people recognise him for, in um, 1981, which is James Kahn's Thief, which is uh, later massively riffed upon by Nicholas Whitney Reference Drive. <laughs> Michael Mann is a fascinating case study for authorship in cinema because he is a guy who was a really socially and politically engaged young man who would have been making films if he had not kind of gone down the path of television and had a bit of a, a sort of a weird divergent track as filmmakers like Martin Scorsese, like Francis Ford Coppola, like all those big hitters, Malick, in that new Hollywood period, um, and even Cassavetes to a certain extent. And he then goes on and sort of starts or, if you like, continues a conversation of kind of post-Watergate existential crises, masculinity America through all of his films, but he just seems to be making them and saying these things much later than a lot of his actual contemporaries, which... I think is what massively draws me to him as a filmmaker. Yeah, he's an incredibly meticulous director, focuses on professionalism and the lines that people draw in their life. And I'm absolutely stoked that I get to talk about him with you guys on Hell is for Hyphenates, to be honest. It's honestly great to talk to someone about Michael Mann who really loves Michael Mann because a lot of people have sort of fallen out of love with him with his later work. And it's been great to... Like, filmographies are never designed to be watched in order. They're not like a TV series. They're a series of standalone works, but it, it's really good to do it that way because you're not following a narrative, you're following a filmmaker's progression. And in catching up with all of man's early stuff, a lot of which I discovered I had not actually seen, I gained a new appreciation for the later films that I hadn't connected with initially. So it's like rediscovering this filmmaker, particularly... Uh, starting with the Jericho Mile. It was made for TV, but it was released theatrically outside of the US, so it, it is sort of his first film. And you can see why this guy got so many offers, because he's got such a strong visual style, he handles character really well, the, the, the racial tensions within this prison, it's all... It's such a strong debut. Yeah, he's a, he's a filmmaker that's really kind of strange in, in, in that way, because Jericho Mile starts off like set basically in like a Folsom prison in amongst a whole bunch of crazy Aryan nation <laughs> gang members. Man's got this very meticulous undertaking whenever he goes into any different project to sort of bring in real people, real scenarios, real spaces to kind of give that a flavor to the, the narrative they're just telling. And it's about a guy who goes to prison and I don't think there's any question that he did do what 
he was accused of. Um, and he just so happens to start running to the point that he can beat the Olympic times for a mile. So he's uh, running along and that's his, that's his journey is starting to get a few extra privileges to do that. Again, it's, it's a pretty bold film to, to make as a first up thing. And it's really starts the whole, a lot of the, the wrestle um, between professionalism sort of echoes from this point. It's like the catalyst for what ends up being discussed, you know, throughout his work. Yeah. He's fascinated by obsessives. Uh, and people who are not necessarily obsessed with what we, you know, would necessarily recognise as fun hobbies. But, <laughs> and it's not just, it's not just professionalism, it's people who put what they do in the place of having a life. It takes them over and maybe that's metaphor for filmmaking, maybe it's not. But that fascination with, if you're obsessed with something, and I think this starts from the Jericho Mile and goes right through to black hat and then a massive obstacle comes in your way do you choose to carry on with your obsession even if it means compromising even if it means making mistakes or do you retreat in a sense and there's often a moment in his films where you'll see that main character almost crushed they have this moment of inwardness when they realize the relationship between what they're doing and the world that they're in that they've tried to do this thing to take themselves out of the world but no they come slap bang up against it and they have to question why they've made those choices and what they have outside that when it comes up with a real character like um muhammad ali and ali it's particularly fascinating but it's there all the way through and particularly with people who are on what we would think of as the other side of the law or the other side of morality who have such a strong conviction and then there'll be a moment where they think hang on what am i doing yeah so like one of the great things and it even starts it even starts out in thief it's a guy who gets out of prison and has a strange kind of patchwork ideal mural that he carries around with him about his dream life and what the dream life would be. And in this sense, in Thief, it's like that physical representation of a dream or a perfect life or that sometimes with certain characters, there's no wrestle between having like a normal life and even De Niro goes, you know, what's a normal life? Barbecues and ball games, you know, like mm. that's the that's the the difference yeah. in a lot of the characters. And I think that that's what carries through is like, do you have a domesticated view of yourself? Do you have this idealized white picket fence version of yourself, or does the thing that you do drive you so much that you do it to your own detriment <laughs> and to the detriment of every relationship that you potentially have? If you want to be extraordinary, you have to take this this crazy route. So two interesting things for me about Thief. One is the beginning of man's use of just the most left field cameos. So yes. here from Willie Nelson. Willie and Nelson. Not, not the cool hippie Willie Nelson that, you know, pitchfork loves now, but this is Willie Nelson in his reggae album Wilderness Years. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and man sees in him this emblem, like this connection back to Easy Rider and that kind of era. And I'd completely forgotten that. I was like, my God, that was Willie Nelson. And he does that quite a lot. He likes to have, as you say, to bring some realness. So someone who's known from outside the film drops them in, connects the film to this bigger cultural world. And then also the fact that since, you know, some years after the film, Mann has said it was meant to be this massive, crushing critique of capitalism and no one got it. 
<laughs> but it's meant to be saying, well, capitalism is, is just, everyone is a thief. You know, the state is a thief. It steals people's lives and put them in prison. It steals our taxes. It steals money from us all the time. Capitalism steals from us by, you know, making us buy shit we don't need. It's meant to be, well, how is, how is this guy any worse than capitalism? And this, this enormous satire. Mm. And I think, you know, you can often feel that in his films, that they... They do come from that perspective, as you were saying, Blake, that he was part of that new American cinema of the 70s. These guys who were so critical and were coming out of film schools and were really educated about that stuff. But his love of cinema, like his love of style and of performances, it sits there on the surface and you just get absorbed in that. And at the end, you're not like, wow, I am going to become an anarchist. You're like, <laughs> great. <laughs> you're like, instead, you're like, man, I love synth. Man, yeah. I love synth. <laughs> well, may maybe not. <laughs> so, guys, after Thief, and I really would be interested if you got your hands on it and were able to track it down, is Michael Mann's most contentious misstep in his career, The Keep. The, be the, the now really extremely from Australia difficult to get crazy batshit sci-fi movie starring Gabriel Byrne, Scott Glenn, and Ian... Gandalf McKellen, Sir yeah. Ian. Yeah, this is a weird one. I mean, it's you can see what he's going for, this sort of fantasy film for adults. And it looks fantastic. I think the location work is amazing, but... Yeah, wow. What I I, mm, <laughs> I don't know what to say about this one. <laughs> it is the only Michael Mann film that is on Netflix UK. I, really? I oh, really? don't know what that means socioculturally, but it does mean <laughs> that UK listeners can check it out if they have Netflix. And oh, God. it's a sort of counter-historical film in which they're, you know, it's, it is assumedly set in our historical timeline. There are Nazis, but they have released an ancient demon and they have to get a Jewish uh, historian to help them. And none of it makes any sense. It's kind of like a vampire film because it's set in Romania. And you, there's a sort of, the keep is, you keep expecting it to be Dracula's castle. Um, so it's kind of playing with all this Aryan, East European myth. And it's, it's one of those American films that's sort of deeply obsessed with Nazi memorabilia and the whole look of the Third Reich. And at the same time, it's trying to like Thief supposedly being this like massive anti-capitalist statement, it's like trying to unpick the Nazis' own fascination with their, their Aryan mythology and their connection to sort of the old myth of Eastern Europe by having this, this Jewish character. But I have to say that I could not make a lot of sense of it. No, if, and it also feels like there's sex scenes that are injected. It's only 96 minutes long. There are sex scenes that are injected into this movie and you're like, what is actually going on? You have no idea. Like, there's more invested in a sex scene than some whole character arcs in this movie. So it's 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 really strange and it seems like out of character. I don't know whether that's in the novel. I don't know whether it was the production. I don't know whether maybe it was just budget because it is quite ambitious um, as far as what the content is going to be and, and be really kind of anti-authoritative if you like or maybe it was off the back of like Raiders success like oh if we bring in Nazis we can say something as opposed to just popcorn I'm not sure but yeah it's it's a really strange one and it's one that I think kind of I don't think man likes to even put his name on on that film um, anymore he kind of went back you know kind of reverted back uh, to it to another uh, area of strength straight afterwards well, just to say that it's, I think he has every right not to put his name on it. It's a film that was cut by the studio. 
So his original cut was three and a half hours. Which wow. Is, uh, yeah. It, it was, and the rest of that time was just sex scenes. It was adapted from these totally out there comics by Enki Bilal, who I don't know if you've ever seen sort of Jodorowsky's comics. It's that same mm. kind of psychedelia that's all about the look. There are all these massive world-bending stories about conspiracies and ancient monsters. It's, it's a whole world, and the film doesn't really give you time to get in it. It does just look like a bad cut of a George Romero film. Yeah. Um, he went out there and he, you know, obviously tried to do his Indiana Jones thing, and then he went back to being Michael Mann. 1986's Manhunter predates Science of the Lambs by five years, features an amazing Hannibal Lecter. You can really see, I mean, he's obviously done this, as, as we talked about, he's done it in Thief, but I think Thomas Harris gets into his head the way Lecter gets into Will Graham's head and plants this seed of the duality of criminal and cop. Because yeah. uh, it stays with him from this point on, almost almost every film, well not almost every film, but a lot of films. Uh, so yeah, this feels like a big part of his origin story. Yeah, and it's so uh, immediate of the time. It's strange that you know now we're we're seeing all the time that books are optioned almost immediately, um, and this was kind of optioned and made so fast. And in fact, Michael Mann was even offered to do Silence of the Lambs, pretty much backing backing up. Um, but his take on it is. He's kind of slightly different. He almost feels like he wants to distance himself from the original novel for some strange reason. It is such a great adaption and it's such a great sort of weird seed um, that gets planted with this kind of guy who's, again, another obsessive um, in his work, um, an obsessive in a pursuit of a dream, even if it's intangible. The, the opening scene of Manhunter, for me, which still is striking, is a person holding a handheld camcorder walking up the stairs in the house into the home of what is about to be one of his victims. Um, and man does such a great little trick kind of midway through the film when Will Graham, uh, played by William Peterson, and that exact identical sort of walking up the stairs shot um, on video is his experience of walking up the stairs. It's that great kind of cheeky nod um, that cinematographer Dante Spinotti does with man to just say, look, this guy is seeing the world the same way a serial killer sees the world. And I think that that's really important for that whole duality of man, whether it's one person that's really having the conflict or it's multiple people. Definitely the, that idea that the cop and the killer are coming from the same place, I think, is not really in Thomas Harris's novel and is absolutely man's obsession. I think we've got to talk about the flaming chair scene. He really does cross the line sometimes. I think deliberately in his depiction of whether we want to call it evil, it's, you know, he's not afraid. And in a non-horror film, in a realist film, and maybe that's part of why the keep doesn't work because it's such a fantasy. You're like, oh yeah, of course, Nazis are evil. But in the yeah. films where he's, you know, doing these more realist crime dramas, he will have a point where he pushes you, where you see this character isn't just someone that we can be sympathetic to or even fascinated by. They are going to cross a line and he makes it look stunning but sickening. That's a huge part of his next film, Last of the Mohicans. So, oh, 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 you've missed one. TV film. Oh, his TV film. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's okay because this is, yeah, this is a TV film. And it would, I don't know, it, like, I really enjoyed it, but it would be a minor footnote if not for the fact that 1989's L.A. Takedown is a film he remakes a few <laughs> years later. And it's so interesting to see 
him handle the same material twice. Uh, quite aside from the fact that he's now used Sympathy for the Devil twice uh, in Jericho <laughs> and in here, and the scenario in which there are two trackers, one I'm supposed to find, one I'm not. He uses that three times. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny that not many filmmakers ever really get a do-over, like another opportunity to kind of take it. But man does it, based off of his original sort of research, does an LA takedown, and then a couple of years later, he's, he's backing it up with heat. It, it's, it's like if you tried out a recipe for the first first time and it didn't quite work and so you got better ingredients and then you made it again <laughs> and it, it just everything works and the weirdest thing is that he earns the right to do that by making the most anomalous film in his career yes his lush david lean style epic his uh, romantic the last of the mohicans adapted from a 19th century novel starring daniel day lewis it's a historical a sort of gritty historical epic um, slush, lush, romantic drama. Those bits <laughs> never really quite sit together. It's like, it's so critical or trying to be of colonialism, but look how romantic it is. And somehow that puts him back in the big leagues. Blake, how does that work? I don't, like, I don't know, but I love this damn movie. It's so goddamn entertaining. I just don't know how you... This might be that same sort of, you know, satire of, of kind of war, like war and politics, but man kind of dials it right back. I don't know. I don't. I don't know whether it maybe this is more indicative of what the keep would have looked like had man had more influence or something like that. Of being able to be a bit more ambitious, he's making something entertaining mm. and stylish and beautiful, but you know, harsh and ugly as well. Um, in that in those things. So I, I don't. I don't know how it works, but all I know is that it has insane rewatch value. It's it's very good. It's very entertaining. It's very romantic. I mean, you can't get anyone hot. You can't get much hotter than waist-length, long-haired Daniel Day-Lewis making out with Madeline Stowe, who also has waist-length, long hair. It's pretty <laughs> damn... It's like the front cover of a Mills and Boone novel coming to life. So I really don't know what else you're going to do with that other than enjoy it. It's, I mean, it's 100% the, the combination of Mills and Boone with Boy's Own Adventure. He just yes. he picks these two genres that are going to get everyone into the cinema and then overlays it with this, you know, deadly serious story, but also historical literary value. And somehow, as much as I hate myself for how much I love it, it works. <laughs> and the quality of the supporting cast is just amazing. I mean, this is the first era really in... Hollywood cinema, where you have Native American character actors cast as Native American characters. This incredible heritage drama supporting cast, as if he's going to Scorsese, ha ha, you're doing Age of Innocence, but no, 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 no. Look, I'm doing a heritage drama, <laughs> and it's a massive action movie. <laughs> Take that. So it really, it feels like on the one hand, it's competing with Dancers with Wolves, and on the other with the Age of Innocence, and like, boom, bringing those two massive unlikely hits together. His two next films, I think, are the collective jewels in the crown of his entire career. Mm. Um, I think Heat, the LA crime epic, is as an accomplished piece of filmmaking as any film that I've ever seen. In fact, it's my favourite film. And wow. not only is it beautiful, not only does it take its time, but I find that even from the minute one of the film, it draws you in effortlessly so that once you see Val Kilmer buying uh, explosives, you're pretty much there. And that's about 30 seconds into the movie. You're pretty much... Two and a half hours are going to go past. And it is a real showcase of everything that man's career culminates with, both philosophically 
thematically um, and aesthetically. Pacino and De Niro acting across from each other in one of the best performance masterclasses to this day. A huge array of characters experiencing this entire epic across from itself. And it's all these influences of art and the lure of this kind of sublime. It is sublime. It's a heat. Heat is incredible. I agree with all of that. I think it, it is an incredible film that does still stand up despite the fact that oh, there's this almost absurd machismo that works here and sort of this is the end of it. Like you can't sort of explore that again after Heat because Heat's done it and you're not going <laughs> to top it. And that scene is so often referenced in popular culture where they sit down in the cafe and they have a coffee and they, they talk about their jobs and yet it's still electric. It's still, it has not been diminished by the years or the memes or the whatever, which is a huge testament to the film. I feel like one thing that he learned from working with Daniel Day-Lewis maybe was to get out of the way of the actors. And mm. from heat onwards, you just see him creating these scenarios in which often quite diametrically opposed or really fascinating casting pairings just get to go at the material. And he just, everything looks so stylish around them, but as a director, he just kind of gets out of their way. And that scene between Pacino and De Niro is you know, the, the sine qua non of it. It's just, he's worked out what works. He respects his collaborators and stuff just moves so fast. As you say, he becomes this incredibly efficient filmmaker, you know, from shot one, boom, you're in the world. And you sort of know it's a Michael Mann world and you're going to go with it. And you're hundred percent right about, you know, diametrically opposed characters. I mean, he moves from like arguably two of America's greatest actors. And then he, he still carries through with Pacino, but then it's Pacino across from Russell Crowe and The Insider, mm. which, I mean, two films, so there's this machismo, but it's also about that existential crisis that is so prevalent in that new Hollywood. And he basically dives into a, like a late 90s kind of network with the insider and has this amazing story. 60 Minutes is Lowell Bergman and Jeffrey Wigand who kind of uncovered what, which seems kind of weird now that you're even talking about it, but the fact that cigarettes will kill you. And um, I mean, I know shock, right? But, uh, you know, kind of uncovered and, and that became such a, an incredible story. And that filming it kind of so close to the heels of it actually all unfolding. I'd totally yeah. forgotten that this was a year before Aaron Brockovich. So it sort of kicks off the whistleblower movie. Mm. Yes. The, that return to that 1970s obsession with, you know, the kind of Manchurian candidate thing of the person who's on the inside and becomes a whistleblower, sees what's going on. And I think it's still sort of playing itself out in Hollywood cinema. And just, you know, he, that genius of capturing that in that, that two-word title, like he captures what it's about in one word the insider this is absolutely a director who is at the peak of knowing what they're doing and yes. in tune with the zeitgeist as well yeah it's 99 it's the era of the protest against the world trade organization the battle for seattle we want to see these big corporations get taken down and maybe this is the film of his that comes closest to that commitment that he said thief was coming from to exposing capitalism to exposing corporate structures and and the form and the function of fitting together here maybe the best they ever do completely and there's more connective tissue i think between heat and the insider than any of his films beforehand and you see that continue on through ali and collateral and miami vice and even public enemies and black hat you see the michael man we identify here continue on as he moves 
into digital and uh, and this phase of his career. Most definitely, and I think it's almost like after doing Heat and the Insider and kind of making films that are thematically about what some of those new Hollywood films are about, it's almost like Ali is doing a period film to go back. Like yeah. he actually wanted to take it back to those times and back to those topics and kind of just get into a, a mindset of all of this sort of chaos happening all in the world, the civil rights movement, Watergate, Vietnam War, like it's all colliding and it's almost like having a setting and because he's such a, uh, a meticulous and sort of a slave to that backdrop and sort of fleshing everything out, Ali is actually going back to it. People argue the success of Ali. It kind of it came out. It was the big biopic. It, again, I feel like the insider was the whistleblower kickoff and like around Ali, then biopics were just everywhere. Like every yeah. second week there's a biopic and, and, and arguing whether they're successful or not is the constant. But I, I find Ali is like tremendously successful and also does one of the things that a lot of biopics don't do right, which is give a kind of decade corridor of the that what they're going to cover with this particular character and just try and stay focused because all these long and languid biopics sometimes just drown in, you know, not knowing what to cover, not knowing what period of life they're subject to cover. And I think man does it so beautifully here in LA. And Will Smith, holy dooly, is he just amazing as as the man himself. Can I, uh, can I mention, this is where I start to have a problem with with man's films and I was trying to identify how how it took shape. Now I, I love the insider and it feels like it's cut from the same cloth as all the president's men. And that came back to me with Ali because one of the things I love about all the president's men is it flows like real life. It has no beginning or end, which is, is the point and the insider runs with that. But from Ali onwards, I feel his films start to feel narratively formless. The middle feels like the end, feels like the beginning, and you can never really tell where you are at any given time. And that works for a biopic, where that's part of a person's life. But after Ali, I find it really frustrating, even if it's intellectually interesting. And I feel like the drama flatlines, particularly with something like Miami Vice. And I think even though I've sort of reevaluated his later films, I think he still loses me around here. Yeah, so Collateral definitely is the stronger of some of his later films just because exactly does the opposite of what you're talking about, Lee. It's like, mm. it's so perfectly contained, so concise, one night, great premise, cab ride, strong characters, enclosed space, just let electricity happen. And that's why ultimately it's like extremely successful. And Sophie said, you know, she, she may have a problem for loving Last of the Mohicans as much as she does. I am unabashedly in love with Miami Vice. <laughs> I, I am. I love it as much as someone can love Colin Farrell's moustache and mullet combo. I'm just obsessed with this movie. I, I love the cruddy New Orleans accents. Um, uh, and I, I can't hear a bad thing about it, Lee. <laughs> oh, well, I'll, I'll just... Uh, I'll I won't say what I was going to say then. <laughs> I'm going to jump no. in it and say it's, I think Clashwell and Miami Vice are the really interesting two sides of the same coin because in a way they are both like the Michael Mann greatest hits album. With, with Miami Vice, you get to go back, <laughs> you know, to the TV series that he started that was like such a, so emblematic of the 80s and to try and redo it in this totally new, new century, new millennium and try and bring that cultural cachet at a time when, you know, like 80s parties and everything were happening. What does it mean to try and reimagine that film? But on the other hand, Collateral, the soundtrack quotes from Heat, 
which I think is yeah. pretty cheeky. Again, you know, you have Jamie Foxx's character, Max. He carries around this postcard that symbolises his dream. So that goes back to uh, to Thief. There's all these notes that come mm. from previous Michael Mann movies. It's like he's gathering them together and restating them. And it's so neat and it's so tight. And then with Miami Vice, it is like he's trying to make a TV series in a in a film and it's really sprawling and there's so much that he wants to do with it. And I, yeah, it lost me. From Miami Vice onward, and this is, you know, whether it's a, both a technical filmmaking or not, you kind of get public enemies and public enemies really feels to me like one note man, you know, for, mm. for, so, for so long we've seen these amazing dueling characters or dueling sides of selves and you kind of walk into Public Enemies and it doesn't feel like it has anything to say. You know, it's, 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 there's a little bit about infamy there and, and there's something, but it feels almost like the strength of the theme has now been truly exhausted. Like the world's empty, it's done. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and Public Enemies and Black Hat just feel so much like that for me, is, and, and particularly Black Hat, but Public Enemies too is that it's it's kind of milked for all it's worth it's like we need something you know we need something else to be said do you get the sense that the johnny depp christian bale sequence or scene is designed to evoke the same feeling as the diner scene in heat but there's just no energy there yeah it, it feels very singular like i think almost the best bits of public enemies feel like where it actually gets to be an examination of infamy, like in fame and, and what that kind of means. And it sort of, it could go down an entirely different tangent if it wasn't so anchored to kind of man's default crime setting. It's like fame being really interesting when it's as a result of doing crime. Um, mm. Because in a lot of these other criminals, it's about hiding. It's about, you know, evading. It's about you, you sense that heat coming around the corner, you got to get out of there. It just feels like the message is lost. It's not being heard. And then by the time you hit Black Hat, it's just awful. <laughs> it's just I, I awful. Think Black Hat, it really helped that everyone was calling it terrible because I was coming to it as this straight-to-video underdog. <laughs> and so I, I think, oh, that wasn't as bad as its reputation suggests. Come on. Look, I, I, I just want to touch on, on the digital aesthetic briefly because that that was something that people were commenting on a lot man was a very early adopter of digital cinema and he ran with it because there was something about it that appealed to him as opposed to this is the way the industry is going and it felt really ugly at, in the beginning and i think i having going back to these films it feels a lot more normal now but at the time it jarred and i don't know what it was because i was really digging soderbergh's xl1 you know, digital aesthetic at the time, but this pulled me out and I was wondering if it was the uncanny valley of digital cinema. It's not ugly enough or pretty enough mm. to convince me, but now I've sort of started to come around to it now that digital is, is ubiquitous. I'm, I'm feeling a lot more sympathetic, particularly to collateral, but also, you know, public enemies. I, I think I enjoyed more visually this time around. It's funny because uh, Dante Spinotti had been a regular collaborator with Man for a long time and he's a very accomplished cinematographer and has a great reputation and he abandoned Man uh, around the time of Collateral because he was like, ugh, digital. But then he actually does come back on board for Public Enemies. So I think by the time we get around to Public Enemies, it's almost like you can see a little map. It's like, you know, kind of 2004 to kind of 2009 
there's like five years there where you could go either way with what you're going to use in terms of form. And so I think that you start to see it become a bit more normalized and people start to go, oh, well, I guess I don't have the option. If they're closing Kodak, I'm going to have to jump on board this bad boy. And it's interesting to look at it in retrospect because you're exactly right. It does feel normal, but it's funny to see almost like an industry perspective there. It's like, no, I'm definitely not going to shoot in that, you know, and it's almost like in 10 years and then it's like, bang, okay, we're doing it. Yeah, right. But I feel like in Public Enemies, Spinotti is still like, ugh, I still don't want to shoot in digital. And <laughs> <laughs> he, hasn't, he hasn't really gone and learned what digital can do at that point. And there's, it's particularly jarring in a historical drama. Yes. You know, there is an argument to be made that if you're setting a film in the 30s, you should be, or you could be evoking the style of that period. And in man's previous period dramas, whether it's Ali or Lost of the Mohicans, he's tried to have a palette that evokes the time. Mm. And this isn't a sort of brash Plunkett and McLean style anachronism mashup. It's trying to be very classical. And unfortunately for me, I just keep thinking, oh, I'd rather be watching The Untouchables. Because I am am a child of the 80s. (laughs) It sucks. But then with Black Hat, it's a film about cybercrime. And you want it to be sort of more inventive with digital and to be using mashups of CCTV and iPhone footage and really getting into the way that people who do live their lives online and participating in this cyber world do see screens within screens and experience these different grainy sometimes new sometimes awful looking technologies so it does feel like he chose to do black hat because he wanted to do a project that looked at the digital world but his aesthetic is still catching up with that interest and that interest in how cybercrime is changing this fascination with evil and fame that you were talking about because cyber criminals are people who hide i mean i think the michael mann kim.com biopic is what we all want to see right (laughs) (laughs) it's it's also as well i think it's about what it focuses so part of what ruins public enemies is it focuses too much on trying to fit this analysis of fame into what is already his format and then similarly with blackhead it's about fitting cybercrime into a kind of a narrative crime format that he thinks suits the subject matter. And then ultimately what happens is it becomes this really, spoilers, stupid revenge drama. Like, really stupid. Not like sublime, like, you kill my dog, I'm John Wick, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to use my gun instead of strikes and murder every single one of your henchmen. But, like, ridiculously stupid, you know, travelling across the world, it doesn't matter if I turn off a nuclear reactor, but you killed my new Asian girlfriend's brother, so now I'm going to murder you? It makes absolutely no sense. So it's like, I think man right now doesn't feel like he's got the focus. But that being said... Any Michael Mann movie is usually better than most other movies for me as a Michael (laughs) Mann fan. So I do find some saving graces in a lot of these films that are kind of not so great, you know, whether it's just sequences or scenes or glimpses or the ambition to create something, whereas sometimes, you know, it, it doesn't totally come off. Well, that, that is my definition of a fan, is if you like something even at its worst because you enjoy its fundamental properties so much, I think that's when you call yourself a fan. So you are clearly a Michael Mann fan. You're a man fan. You're a fan. Michael Mann man. 
I'm a man, 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 man You're fan. Right. Well, thank you, Blake, so much for explaining your love of man or mansplaining. I think I'm using that term oh, correctly. Absolutely correctly. Excellent. Good. Good. And uh, yeah, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Thank you, guys. It's been an honor and a pleasure to mansplain to you today. <laughs> Has and, a director uh, ever ever had such good nominative determinism, Michael Mann? <laughs> <laughs> Makes films about masculinity. <laughs> Brilliant. Now, one one thing we've never mentioned on the show, we have a blog. If you've just subscribed to us via iTunes and you don't follow us on social media, we have a Twitter, we have a Facebook, you may have missed out on our blog. We have uh, episode announcements and guest announcements and cheat sheets and show notes. There's a lot of stuff in there, so please do take a look. But until then, we will see you next month. And we will be visiting a director whose work you may not recognise from this quote. He made highly stylized films, but he said, the more honestly you put yourself into the story, the more that story will concern others. So come and be concerned next month on Hell is for Hyphenates. <laughs> <laughs>